the eighth psalm, and I'll just read the first four verses. We've read the entire psalm, but let me read the first four verses again, if you don't mind. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or how majestic is Thy name in all the earth, who has set Thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast Thou ordained strength. Jesus quotes it and says, perfected praise, because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And David, probably reflecting back on times when he was keeping the sheep out on the fields and looked up in the starry heavens, he said, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. I think it was so appropriate for little children, literally babes and sucklings, to sing a little while ago, he's so great and I'm so small. Because right here in Psalm 8, verse 2, it says that, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, hast thou ordained strength or perfected praise. And then the very next verse calls attention to the vastness and glory of the stars. So I'm going to continue to do that this morning. I began last week. I kind of set the stage last week for today's sermons. Many of you, as I was, were blown away by the first images two weeks ago that came back from the James Webb Telescope. The very first ones came back on the eve of my birthday, and I mentioned last week the greatest birthday present I received was from President Biden releasing the first image. This is the picture of the telescope. We'll get to the images in just a moment. This is the James Webb telescope. And uh, it has those uh, gold plates and mirrors. It was so big that it had to be folded up to fit into a rocket. And then it was launched into space on Christmas Day, 2021. I think that's significant. On the birthday of our great, the human birthday of our great creator, uh, this rocket launched the greatest telescope we've ever had into space, taking stunning pictures from 1.5 million miles away. It's called the James Webb Telescope. Now, who is James Webb? Well, not here to say much about him, but it's interesting. He's a North Carolinian. Uh, he's been gone for quite a few years, but he was born in Granville County. I'm just a few miles away from the Granville County line where I live now. He was the superintendent of schools in Granville County for a number of years. And then he became the number two in command at NASA. He oversaw the decade-long effort of the Apollo program to reach the moon, to put man on the moon. But he wasn't just content to put humans in space. Uh, James Webb thought we needed to push space science. And uh, he was quite a guy. He uh, had the favor of four consecutive presidents, both Democrats and Republicans. And even when we had the tragedy with those three astronauts that were killed on takeoff 
uh, he was able to convince the president to continue with the space program. Again, the recent images sent back from the James Webb telescope more than a million miles in space are a hundred times more powerful than the images from its predecessor, Hubble. And because of the advanced infrared technology, Webb can see, see through space dust and gas and even the atmospheres of remote planets orbiting other stars. Astronomers, for the first time, are seeing galaxies never known to have even existed. This telescope is so sensitive, and of course it operates with infrared technology, it can detect the heat of a bumblebee at the distance of a moon away. It can image a penny from 25 miles away. 18 mirrors, and as I said, had to be folded up to even fit in the rocket. And we're just seeing the first of these images. I trust that the response of our hearts as they keep coming in will be that of David. What is man? That thou art mindful of him. As we see these stars never seen before, millions of light years away from each other, what does God want from that? I'll tell you what He wants from that. He wants worshipers. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. From the ranks of hitherto godless, indifferent men, let's pray that worshipers will arise. I'll just show you these images before we get into the message. We showed the first one last week to kind of be a teaser. The cosmic cliffs of Carina Nebula, this is probably the most striking image that has come back so far. The tall peaks in this image are seven light years high. The brown dust that you see is the raw material of star formation. The second picture is known as Stefan's Quintet, a mosaic of five galaxies. You may recognize that if you are a fan of the holiday film classic, It's a Wonderful Life, as my wife is, and uh, it, this is mentioned there in connection with the angels, Stefan's Quintet. On the third slide, you see another picture of Stefan's Quintet showing rings of gas and dust. It's pretty striking. And then the fourth and fifth images are that of Southern Ring Nebula, which is about 2,500 light years away. And I read that if you could see a cutaway view of, uh, from the side of, of, of this southern rig nebula, it would look like two bowls placed together at the bottom, opening away from one another with a large hole at the center. Now, why is Webb able to detect an image galaxies never known before? I've mentioned it already, but it's because of its infrared technology that enables it to see through space dust. You see, visible light cannot go through these dust regions, but the longer wavelengths of infrared light are able to go around these particles. It's interesting also that Webb, the James Webb Telescope, can detect the composition of the atmospheres 
of remote planets orbiting other stars. And I was really intrigued to find this out. You know what the elements of those atmospheres are? They've been able to define the elements, analyze the same elements that you and I have in our body. Carbon, calcium, phosphorus, sulfur, a little trace of potassium, magnesium. You're, you're worth about two bucks chemically. That's the truth of it. And of course the evolutionists say, see, we came from the stars. The stars have been made, we were made the same stuff as the stars. They just don't get it. An amazing God, amazing creator. But I'm not here to put in a commercial for NASA. I respect what they do. I'm amazed at it. But today I want to be a good advertisement for our great creator God. So let's get ready to worship him. Not the creature. That's the mistake of those talked about in Romans chapter 1. Not the creature. We do too much of that, worshiping the creature. Let's worship the creator. What does God want us to learn from his word about the stars. I'm going to give you a little mini theology of the stars today. Five great truths. Please don't groan because of five points. Some of them do not have any subpoints. A little mini theology of the stars. Number one, the stars declare God's glory. We read last week from the majestic 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the expanse, showeth His handiwork. Yes, God has two books, the book of nature and the book of redemption. They both show forth His glory. The book of nature, the book of creation, does not contradict the Bible. They both have the same author. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40 through 42, and the Bible talks about the glory of the stars. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, I'll begin reading in verse 40. This is the great resurrection chapter. Interesting that Paul would mention heavenly bodies. But he says in verse 40, there are also celestial or heavenly bodies and bodies terrestrial or earthly, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. And we're finding that out. Then he goes on to say, So also is the resurrection of the body. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. He talks about the glory of the resurrection body. Now to the naked eye, all stars from the distance we see them may appear to be alike, but each is unique, just like snowflakes. And there are as many stars as there are snowflakes. We see God's glory in their number and in their size. I remember as a kid reading about what God said to Abraham that he would make his descendants as the dust of the earth, as the sand of the seashore for multitude. I didn't really have a hard time imagining that this was virtually an infinite number, but I'll tell you what, I had a hard time imagining that there was an infinite number of stars as infinite as the numbers of grains of sand. But now with the images coming back from James Webb, I believe there are more stars than grains of sand. 
There are billions and billions of stars, and we'll see in a moment, God just keeps stretching out the heavens. That's an amazing fact that maybe you've never considered. And many of these stars are bigger than our sun. The star Epsilon in the constellation Scorpius, get this, it's 27 billion times bigger than our sun and burns 10,000 times as bright. The stars declare God's glory in their number and in their size, but in their luster. There's a glory to the stars, and you, we don't see it much because we're city slickers here. It's hard to see stars in the sky of Raleigh unless you're out a little bit of a little ways. I mentioned how the late President Theodore Roosevelt would take guests to the White House out onto the lawn, and he would have at night he'd have them lie on their back and look up at the stars, and for a while, and then after a while he'd say, well, I guess we see how small we are. We can go back in. The glory of the stars, they're best seen at night. When God made them on the fourth day, we read in Genesis chapter 1, He saw that it was good. All the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, He saw that it was good. The stars are beautiful, all kinds of stars, twinkling stars, shooting stars, the morning star, the evening star, red dwarf stars, white dwarf stars, supernovas, hot blue stars, neuron stars, and on and on we could go. And then, though I need to be careful here, it's not in an absolute sense, the stars speak of eternality. The sun will burn itself out one day. The Bible says in the epistles of Peter, the elements will melt with fervent heat. The stars, some of them at least, will fall from heaven. Stars will burn out. We read about that in the Olivet Discourse from our Savior and in the book of Revelation. But, but the Bible treats the stars overall as enduring, at least through this age, until their cataclysmic end. The stars are not part of the fallen creation. God's will is done perfectly in every place but on this earth that shares in the curse upon sinful men. That's why I was a little bit reluctant to see man land on the moon. I thought, oh, is the moon going to get cursed too? And some believers will shine as the stars forever and ever. We'll see that in a moment in Daniel chapter 12. They'll have a permanent luster. I hope we appreciate the glory of the stars. I'm afraid we don't notice them that much. But consider with me, secondly, as we develop this mini-theology of stars, God's essential glory is even greater. I mentioned that in my prayer. David went on to say, O Lord, o Lord our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. As glorious as are the stars and the suns and the planets and the comets and other planetary bodies, God himself is more glorious. Now, what do we mean when we, say, when we speak of the glory of God? We kind of have an idea, but we never really explain it. 
I've never heard any preacher give an explanation for the glory of God. And it's hard to, hard to define. What do we mean? When we talk about the glory of God, we're, we're talking about His holiness, His wisdom, and in, in a transcendent way about everything, His goodness, His excellencies, His perfections. In comparison to God Himself, do you realize the Bible says the stars are not pure in His sight? Job 25, 5. It's interesting to note the language of Genesis 1, which gives us, by the way, Genesis 1 is history, not literature. Please don't give me this junk from popular preachers of our day that think they know more and say otherwise. If I can't believe Genesis 1, 1, I can't believe John 3, 16. But it says in Genesis chapter 1, on the fourth day, in verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, the lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon. And then it's almost as if it's an afterthought. It says, oh yeah, He made the stars also. And some of those stars hold billions of our suns. The Creator is greater than His creation, folks. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Of course not. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. No discussion of creation is complete without it. Please turn to Romans chapter 1. Read a couple of verses, verses 25 and then verse 20. And according to Romans chapter 1, verse 25, the beginning of the slippery slope to what Paul calls the reprobate mind, to reprobation. You say, what is that? That's when you can't figure out which bathroom to use. You're so messed up. You can't make a moral judgment. The slippery slope into reprobation is when fallen man, as this verse says, exchanges, it says changes in the King James, that means exchanges the truth of God for a lie and worships and serves the creature more than the Creator who is God blessed forever. And let me just go on record and say our society, our culture has gone absolutely crazy with the creature. Worshiping athletic prowess and sports and makeup and fashion, and glamour photography, we've gone absolutely crazy. Now, what does God reveal about Himself and His creation? If He's not, as I said last week, He's not going to write John 3.16 in the heavens so that we'll know how to be saved. What can we learn about Him from looking up at the stars and seeing the intricacies and glories of His creation? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 20. Two things. Look at it. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that are created. Here it is. Even His, number one, eternal power. And number two, His Godhead. So that they, the heathen, are without excuse. His eternal power. Man, even primitive savages, out in the jungles of 
Africa or South America can look up at the sun and the stars with their brilliance and their regularity to the point of clockwork precision, and they can reason thusly. Someone must have made those bodies. Someone bigger than I am. Furthermore, they can reason, someone is sustaining them. You don't have to have a Harvard PhD to figure that out. In fact, probably a Harvard PhD would be a handicap to you. This universe did not create itself. And then we can reason as Paul did in Athens. We looked at Acts chapter 17 last Sunday. He began his message there with God who made the world and all things therein. He goes on to talk about his self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anything. He gives to all men life and breath. And why does he do that? Lest happily or if happily they should seek the Lord, though he be not far from any one of us. That's why God does what he does in the heavens and shows his eternal power so that we might seek the Lord. Even the heathen man or woman who's never seen a Bible, never heard the name of Jesus Christ, is accountable to God. He is without excuse. And yet we have a lot of professing Christians running around saying, I just don't think a just God would send anybody to hell who's never heard the gospel. They've never read Romans 1. His eternal power, and secondly, we can learn from the heavens and creation, His Godhead. What does that word mean? It refers to God's nature. And He is a triune God. Did you know that even the physical creation around us reveals that? The Trinity. What are the three essential elements to be able to in, understand and interpret our experience in the universe at all? Here, three, it's a continuum. Space, matter, time. All three are necessary, or you can't even interpret your experience in this world. Space, matter, time. Take each of those. They're trinities. Matter, three states, liquid, solid, gas. Space has three dimensions. What about time? Past, present, future. In just a moment, we will see how creation parallels the dual nature of Jesus Christ, what the theologians call the hypostatic union, because Jesus is the light of the world, and, and, and the, the properties of light are so relevant to describing Jesus Christ. And this Evidence is staring us in the face, and yet so few are willing to see it. Even many of the scientists who designed the Webb telescope and had a front row seat to see the evidence of a glorious creator, you'd be amazed to find out how many of them are atheists. Unless the Holy Spirit illuminates a man's mind He's blind as a bat. I don't care what his IQ is. Could we do something this morning? I know we don't usually do this. For about 30 seconds, could we just bow our heads 
and have a moment of silence and thank God for revealing Himself to us and opening our blind eyes because we are no better than anybody else who's still in darkness. It has pleased God to hide these things from the wise and prudent and reveal them unto babes. Why? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight. It's not because of anything in us. Let's just take 30 seconds and thank Him for that. Thank you. Third thing I'd like to leave with you, and this is something that fascinates me and I've never studied it out before, and if I don't say it quite right, please forgive me. I'm not a scientist, but but I can read. God has stretched out the heavens since creation. There's a widespread misunderstanding among even professing Christians that has caused numbers of them to buy into the lie of evolution. And that is this. It is the assumption of what can be called uniformitarianism. Don't let that big word throw you. That's the assumption of uniformity. That's the assumption that processes govern nature today that have always been the same in the past. And so we hear that expression, the present is the key to the past. In scientific circles, it's ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. If you carry out that to its logical conclusion, you will deny young earth creationism. Let me tell you, you will deny young earth creationism. But what does the Bible say? I'm not interested in what Dr. Bottlestopper says. I want to know what the Bible says. Hebrews 11 verse 3. Hebrews 11, verse 3, in the context of the great Hall of Faith chapter of the Bible, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed or created or made by the what class? The Word of God. That's the creative Word. That's divine fiat. That's He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Amen? The worlds were created, were formed by the creative Word of God. Here it is so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Could that be any clearer? When it comes to creation, the present is not the key to the past. This rules out any kind of theistic evolution, the idea that God created raw materials, so to speak, and then He instituted natural evolution as the process for what we see today. No, listen. God created things and people with the appearance of age. He created trees that had rings in their trunks. He created Adam with whiskers. Eve was a mature woman. Now let's bring that into the realm of the stars, because I tantalized you with this last week, and I didn't forget that I promised I'd do this. Hebrews 11 verse 3 holds true for the stars. How can the stars be millions of light years away from each other, but then say that God created the whole universe just six to 7,000 years ago? I hope you thought of that, because that is a great question. Hebrews 11 3 
holds true for the stars. The nearest major spiral galaxy, and you have to distinguish just galaxies per se from spiral galaxies like our own Milky Way. The nearest major spiral galaxy to our Milky Way is the galaxy Andromeda. It is one and a half million light years away. How do we reconcile that? That that is 1.5 million light years away, but the earth and the heavens are only a, a, a few thousand years old. Okay, listen carefully. In straight space, it would take one and a half million light years for light from Andromeda to get here. But even the Big Bang theorists, the evolutionists, will tell you that space dimensions have, are you listening, unfolded. And what does God say? Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 40, verse 22. Isaiah 40, verse 22. This is mind-boggling, and yet it's clear. Isaiah 40, verse 22, the same verse that speaks of the earth being a sphere, though many people at the time and for thousands of years after Isaiah was written believed in a flat earth, but here's what it says. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. He's so big and I'm so small. Amen. Notice the next phrase, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. According to Albert Einstein's famous theory of relativity, if you stretch the fabric of space, you will necessarily stretch the fabric of time. And I know that blows our mind. Thus, Andromeda is, is, is not just one and a half million light years in distance from us, but it's also time-stretched. The way God made the stars so far apart as they are now is, I'll tell you why, He stretched them. And that agrees with Job 26, verse 7. He stretched out the north over the empty space, or you may have a translation that says, He stretches the northern skies over empty space. In other words, Andromeda has already experienced more time than we have on earth. Especially when we realize that earth is closer to the center of the stretching. Do you know that astronomers realize the universe consists of concentric shells of galaxies? And earth is near the center, placed there by God as we might expect, so the so-called starlight problem is no problem at all if you just go by the Bible. And with the stunning images coming back from the James Webb Telescope, we're also hearing another expression, the red shift. The red shift. Astronomers have known this phenomenon since 1908 with a much earlier version of the telescope, though those telescopes were more powerful than we might realize. What is redshift? In redshift, the wavelength of the light is stretched so that light is seen as shifted towards the red part, the infrared part of the spectrum. That's why the Hubble telescope could not see the most distant galaxies that Webb has been able to pick up. But a big telescope operating in the infrared instead of optical wavelengths can see these galaxies. Listen, this is fantastic. These galaxies are moving away from us so fast that their light is shifted into the infrared. You can't detect them any other way. 
He's so great and I'm so small. Thus the earth and the universe is far younger than many people think. A little known fact is that spiral galaxies spin more rapidly at the center and more slowly at the edges. Galaxies thought to be 10 billion years old, and you would hear the evolutionists and, and, and unbelieving astronomers talk about galaxies that are 10 billion years old. No, they couldn't be 10 billion years old because they would have been smeared out in that length of time. But a few thousand years, not a problem. Let's just believe the Bible, amen? Amen. And if you want more help with that, take the 2017 creation documentary called Genesis Paradise Lost. It will help you. Wish I could say more, but first of all, I don't understand much of it. And secondly, you don't have the time for it. Number four, Jesus is called the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. We know He's the Son, S-O-N, Son of God. But Jesus is called the S-U-N of Righteousness. The reference is Malachi 4, verse 2, definitely referring to the Messiah. It so beautifully announces, But unto you that fear My name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. The Son of Righteousness can be none other than the one who said, I am the light of the world. And on the mount when he was transfigured, the Bible says his face did shine as the sun, Matthew 17, verse 2. Later, Jesus speaks through the inspired uh, apostle John, the revelator, and says, I am the bright and morning star. Oh, thank God in him, in Jesus, there is no darkness at all. There's no black hole. His luminosity never diminishes. It always increases. What an apt and inspiring image it is to call Him the light. He is the light. Do you know for centuries scientists have been baffled by the phenomenon of light? Why? Because light exhibits properties of both matter and energy. Is light matter? Is light energy? The answer is yes. There's a mysterious interplay between both. You can't relegate light to just one or the other of those categories. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He exhibits the attributes of both God and man. In His light do we even see light. And His life is the light of man. So I make it real personal today. Has the Son of Righteousness arisen upon you? Has He illuminated your mind? Has He dispelled the darkness of your sin and ignorance and doubt? Have you been born again? Because except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, we read it in John chapter 3. You will not see any beauty in Jesus that you should desire Him. Oh, He'll be a little intellectual football you toss back and forth, but you don't have any fascination for Jesus Christ. 
You may even be a part of the brilliant team that designed the Webb telescope. You could be among the first to see those stunning images coming back of God's glorious handiwork. But you have a veil over your eyes so that you don't acknowledge the Creator even when He is staring you in the face. Unless the Spirit of God does a work in your heart. Will you come to the light this morning? It is shining for you as that song says. As surely as the scales drop from Bartimaeus' eyes, the spiritual blinders will be removed from your heart. And it's a heart problem. It's not a head problem. If you will just open your heart to the, night, to the light, there's nothing wrong with you that a good dose of salvation will fix. Dear old Dr. Bob Sr. used to say, just give God your heart and he'll comb the kinks out of your head. Please don't be like those to whom Jesus said after He healed the blind man in John chapter 9, because you say we see, therefore your sin remaineth. Jesus is the light. He's the Son of righteousness. There's no light apart from Him. Finally, fifthly today, saints are compared to the starry host. Saints, believers, are compared to the starry host. Actually, angelic hosts are also referred to as stars. Job 38, verse 7 speaks of when the foundations, just reading that this week in my devotions, when the foundations of the earth were laid and the morning stars sang together. Since stars were not created until the fourth day, this has to be a poetic reference to angels. But in the Bible, various categories of saints are more commonly compared to stars. And again, for the sake of time, just get, jot down these references. My time is fast flying. Philippians 2, verse 15, the apostle says that we are to shine as lights, and it's the word for luminaries and translated stars in most translations. We are to shine as stars in this world, a world that is characterized as a crooked and perverse generation. Can I just remind you folks that when you leave this building today, you are entering the mission field and it is dark out there. And it's getting darker. Don't let the world interpret what's light for you. The Bible speaks of the spiritual seed of Abraham, promised to Abraham as stars. Would you just jot these references down? First of all, Genesis 13, verse 6, when Abram left Ur of the Chaldees, that idolatrous place, and moved to Canaan, and then he made the hard decision to separate from his compromising nephew Lot that he'd raised like a son. Then the Lord appeared to him and told him that he would make his descendants as the dust of the earth. Genesis 13, 6. But two chapters later, when Abraham passed another test of faith, we read in Genesis 15, verse 5, the Lord brought him abroad, brought him outside where he could see the stars and said, look now toward heaven and see the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed, thy descendants be. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered what's the difference between those two comparisons, dust and stars. 
I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but many Bible scholars agree that inasmuch as stars are much more heavenly than dust, they refer to Abraham's spiritual seed, and the dust refers to his physical progeny. And to this, the Apostle Paul seems to agree with what he says in Galatians chapter 3. He picks up on this. He distinguishes between the natural seed of Abraham and the children of Abraham by faith in the promised seed that is Christ. Yes, as the little children used to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. You are one of them and so am I. A spiritual seed, the stars. Secondly, stars are compared to a vast multitude that are known intimately by God. I know that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, as He closed it out, very solemn words, He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Straight is the gate, and few there be that find it. Yes, I understand that, but I don't believe that means necessarily that hell will be more populated than heaven. I personally believe that God will not be outdone by Satan. Do you realize how big the new Jerusalem is? Plenty of levels, even if you think it's a pyramid and not a cube. It's a huge place filled with saints of all the ages and myriads of angels and all the aborted babies and all the unaccountable infants that died, if we understand the Scriptures correctly. And those are going to shine as bright and as numerous as the stars. And just as our great Creator God calls all the stars by name, according to Psalm 147, verse 4, so you can pay some money to the registry and name a star, but that's not the one that's going to stick. As he calls the stars by name, so aren't you glad Jesus said, I know my sheep, and the Father knows them that are His, 2 Timothy 2 verse 19, and that word for know is genosco, which means He knows us intimately. He knows us absolutely. Finally, I hope I've saved the best till last, at least in my book it is. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3 that soul winners are going to comprise a wise constellation of stars that will shine forever and ever. Daniel 12, 3 was my late father Charles' favorite Old Testament verse is favorite New Testament verse was John 5, 24. It's written on his tombstone, but he loved to quote Daniel 12, verse 3. I can just hear him saying it. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, the expanse, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. The stars are distinguished by their size and their luster in space. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15 a little while ago, their glory varies and so amidst the host of the saved that will be in heaven, the myriads of saints, millions of saints, those who are esteemed truly wise in God's sight, those whose hearts beat as one with His, 
those whom He will honor in a wonderful way and cause them to shine more brightly than others are those who seek to woo and win souls for the glory of God. I hope we'll be challenged about that. Whenever God allows me as unworthy as I am, to have some part in leading some sinner to Jesus Christ. You can ask my wife, I come back home and I say, that's all that matters to me now. That's all that matters. Early in the last century, an American artist and a musician went all over the Midwest and much of the eastern part of our country, and even crossed the ocean and went to England. And he gave chalk talks. Remember the chalk talks? He gave chalk talks of the gospel, seeking to win young people to Jesus Christ. You've probably never heard of him, but you've sung his song many times. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. His name is Judson Van Deventer. But he wrote another song that I think is even greater than I surrender all. It's a song my dad would sing. We may tarry a while here as strangers unnoticed by those who pass by. But the Savior will crown us in glory to shine as the stars in the sky. We shall shine as the stars of the morning with Jesus the crucified one. We shall rise to be like him forever, eternally shine as the sun. Beloved, there's a message in the stars for soul winners. Who are God's stars? Not the ones whose names are on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Not the ones that the world applauds. God's stars are the ones who point others to Jesus. A preacher said recently, and I agree with him, if, if you want what you plant to last a year, plant a flower. If you want what you plant to last a lifetime, plant a tree. If you want it to last forever, plant the good seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the heart of just one poor lost sinner. Will you pray with me? Oh God, this is all that matters. People out there are so lost. They're not even in the ballpark. But give us a burden to see the souls for whom Jesus died brought into the fold. To see his righteous soul satisfied, as we read in 
Isaiah 53, to shine brightly with him forever in the firmament of the third heaven. Let nothing else steal our love and blur our vision. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.